0: And welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am Scott Goldfein, your host, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up, you'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you so much for continued interest and support. This episode features guitarist, singer, composer, producer Thomas McClary, a founder and leading creative force behind the Commodores, which was not just one of the best and most successful funk R&B bands of the 1970s, but by the end of that decade, one of the biggest pop groups in the world. While it was lead singer Lionel Richie who had become the best-known Commodore and a soul superstar, it was McClary who first recruited Richie during their college days at Alabama's. Tuskegee University, it helped transform him into a frontman. The pair joined with the other four principals and signed to Motown Records in 1972. As a self-contained band, it marked a departure for the Barry Gordy-founded Detroit label, so famous for its assembly line factory approach of using lots of specialists to generate hit songs. Although it would not be until two years later, when the Commodore's debut album, Machine Gun, would drop, under the guidance of producer James Carmichael, they hit the ground running as the album contained a pair of r and hits, and I Feel Sanctified, and the title instrumental, Machine Gun, that continued to be in demand for television and film soundtracks. The album was the first of five in a row that saw the Commodores progressing higher up the quality and stardom uh, ladder with each successive release. Those next four albums were 1975's Caught in the Act, then Moving On, then Hot on the Tracks, and then the Commodore self-titled album, or as many called it because of its cover, The Blue Album. The hits and timeless classics on those records included Slippery When Wet, This Is Your Life, Sweet Love, Gimme My Mule, Fancy Dancer, Just To Be Close To You, High On Sunshine, Brick House, Easy, Zoom, and Funky Situation. At this point, the Commodores were a superstar act, and they continued to score on the singles charts with hits like Too Hot to Trot, Three Times a Lady Just to Be Close to You, Sail On, Still, Old Fashioned Love, Lady Who Bring Me Up, and Oh No. By the time internal friction splintered the group in the early 1980s, causing first Ritchie to go his separate way, and shortly followed by McClary, the Commodores had amassed 16 top 40 pop hits, 6 top 20 pop albums, and during one stretch, They notched four straight number one R&B albums. The Commodores created some of the 20th century's greatest and most enduring funk, soul, and pop. McClary, who has billed himself as the first Commodore and released his autobiography last year called Rock and Soul, lays claim to being the architect of what he calls the group's signature sound. Here, in an in-depth and candid discussion, he talks about that sound, as well as how the group was formed, how it rose to the height of fame, how the wheels came off, and how despite some bitter infighting, he continues to hold out hope of reunion. Plus, aside from the music, McClary is a fascinating figure and family man, who recounts his experiences as a child, being one of the first African-American students to integrate the Florida school system. I found him to be a smart, funny, and highly engaging gentleman loaded with incredible stories. I gotta tell you, you've tuned in for an exceptional truth and rhythm, so enjoy. It is my distinct honor to welcome to Truth and Rhythm guitarist, singer, composer, producer, Thomas McCleary, a founding member of one of the best and most successful funk R&B pop bands of all time, the great Commodores. He's also an author with his autobiographical book, Rock and Soul, having been released last fall. So wonderful to have you, Thomas. How's it going?
1: Oh, really good. Kata, it's a pleasure. You know, I was anticipating talking to you today. And uh, as I, you know, got a little inside info on you and the Slipper Went Wet. (laughs) (laughs) You're a Slipper Went Wet fan, which is, you know, uh, I love to hear that. Uh, We were, um, funny thing about that song, Slipper Went Wet, we would play Madison Square Garden, um, and Mick Jagger would, you know, come to our sound checks, and um, he he told Lionel and I when, once he says, uh, you know, "Slipper When Wet" is the song that the Rolling Stones would use as a part of their sound check. <laughs> their sound check. So I was glad to to uh, to have. Um, Obviously, you know, Mick Jagged and the Stones playing one of my songs, even even in soundcheck. You know? <laughs> yeah, so so
0: you yeah, had maybe Keith Richards playing your riff? There you go. <laughs> wow. Nice. <laughs> 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 wow. Yeah, I just, I love that track. We'll talk about it a little more when we get to that album. But um, as I told you, it hooked me back when I was, I think, in junior high. But um, from then on, man, I was... I was in. I was in with the Commodores, so.
1: Well, Scott, I, I, looking at you, I didn't think you were old enough to know about the Commodores, but hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks.
0: I, I wouldn't think you're old enough to be in the Commodores. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. <laughs> looking good. So, um, so where are you coming to us from today, Thomas? I'm in Orlando. Just got back from Los
1: Angeles, uh, where we. Um, uh, continuing my book tour, Rock and Soul. Um so, you know, I am a little jet lag, but I said, hey, no, nah, I gotta do this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Much appreciated. So sure. uh, well I want to jump right into it, you know, but get some some background on on the great Thomas McClary all the way back. You know, where where were we from originally, Thomas? And did you come up in a musical household? What was it like growing up in the McClarys household? Oh, that's a good question.
1: Yeah, I, I'm i originally from a small town, Eustis, Florida. And I grew up in, in a household of eight. It was uh, four boys and four girls. And we were all two years apart. And my parents were musically inclined. And so I grew up with instruments all around me. Uh, my Older brother Samuel played every single instrument, so you know um, he was obviously the 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 guru who influenced me uh, initially. And um, I got started actually playing the ukulele; that was my Mm -hmm. first instrument. So I guess I can attribute some of my strumming style on the guitar from my days as a ukulelist. And of course, um, I was the first African American to integrate the public school in my uh, county back in uh, the the early sixties when the civil rights movement was a was a formidable during that time. And I happened to have um, it was a watershed moment for me actually because I was a fan of, of Dr. King and. Jackie Robinson and as I looked at the news every day and uh, witnessed some of the racial uh, slurs and some of the cross burnings and from the Klan and some of the um, things that were happening on television uh, in other states I Actually, witnessed a lot of that in my own hometown, but I was uh, determined to um, integrate the school, and because that the school was literally blocks away from my house, and I had to go uh, catch a bus to go on the other side of town uh, to the school that I was attending at the time, and so. Uh, to actually uh, survive and and endure some of that, it actually played an important role in my grit and it just kind of gave me fuel and I thought, man, if I could survive two years of having a rock thrown at you and um, literally your sweater being burnt while you're wearing it, and still managed to um, coexist and bring about a peaceful environment, Um, it was uh, a wake-up call for me. And as I uh, graduated and went to Tuskegee, Alabama, I was, um, and I talk about this in my book, Rock and Soul, too, by the way. I um, as I got to Tuskegee, Alabama, thinking, "Okay, now, great, I'm in an all-black school, and you know, I have gone through this thing of integrating um, an all-white school, only to find out that um, there were some things there as well, uh, with um, uh, George Wallace being the the governor, and um, we had, uh, I was an engineering major and the engineers were complaining about some of the instructors not being, um, speaking English very well. They And they um, decided that uh, the administrators weren't listening to them. So they decided they were gonna hold the trustees hostage. <laughs> and Come to find out, one of the trustees was uh, was the president was the son of uh, the president of Coca Cola. So he called George Wallace, and next thing we know, the troops are on the campus, and you know the students started to protest also because there was a gentleman named uh, Samuel Young who had just gotten killed the year before I got there mm-hmm. because he had gone into an all white bathroom. So I'm standing in the registration line now, I'm thinking, oh my God, did I pick the right school? So I hear this guy whistling a song by Eddie Harris uh, called Listening Here. And uh, Eddie Harris is a jazz saxophonist. And so I turned and I said, "Uh, are you a musician? This guy was very shy. You know, he, he kind of looked down. He says, "No, nah, I'm not really." I said, "Well, man, you know, I'm I'm trying to find some musicians because I want to be, you know, on the talent show for the freshman talent show, and um, just to kind of get my mind settled here." In you know, um, he says, "Well, if you could meet me." i live here in tuskegee if you meet me and my grandmother's where i live across the streets from the campus i'll round up some guys for you to audition and then it you know maybe you can put put a band together from that uh, audition this guy was lionel Richie. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and
1: so there we we are on our mission to um audition and then he comes down the stairway playing a saxophone and I'm like, I thought you said you weren't a musician. (laughs) He says, oh, well, you know, I play a little bit. I said, okay, you're in the band. So, um, the watershed moment for me was when my uh, parents said to me, you know, if you decide that you're going to go and integrate the school, we're going to support you. Now, we can do one of two things. We can walk you to the school and you know, baby you or take you to the school and try to camp around the campus. and Or we can say, OK, son, this is your moment like the Eagles do. Go fly. So I, it was that same momentum because I had a band called the Matadors in high school Mm -hmm. that I wanted to pursue my music. And it was, um, I knew that um, even from, uh, when I was like six or seven years old, I would have these, dreams and aspirations of being on stage. And I would go and visit um, and see some of the gospel acts that, you know, like um, um, the, the Blind Boys or the Soulsters and, mm-hmm. and the guitar that they used in, the, in their presentation. It was always attractive to me. And uh, of course, um, uh, Chuck Berry, Jimi Hendrix, you know, B.B. King were all um, obviously um, a huge, I was a huge fans so And so as I met Lionel Richie, my opening statement to him was, you know, I'm going to put this band together and we're going to be the Black Beatles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs>
0: Well, that's a lot of history right there, Pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's just all in my book, though, and I just kind of just wanted to give you a quick overview. Um, the book is, um, we're, we're, we're going to do a movie based on the book, so it is uh, really uh, a powerful story, um, according to, some of the
0: executives that are excited about doing the movie Uh, well congratulations to you on on the book and also that opportunity well deserved thank you scott so you connected with uh, lionel that magic uh you know uh fateful whatever you want to call it uh meet up that you guys had and um how did how did the band then get fleshed out and you know when did you first start getting out and, and really kind of performing
1: well our first performance was the talent show and because like i said lana was very shy and the other guys that uh, apparently uh it was uh alfred hines on the bass, lana was on the sax uh excuse me uh, andre callahan was on the drums and i was on the guitar and of course when the curtains open up, everybody went behind the curtains except me and the drummer. <laughs> so, Tuskegee being a small campus, but it was 4,000 students and that was a lot if we had not performed live in front of an audience. So, we went from the band being shy basically to face an audience to opening up for the Jackson Five. But obviously, there was a, um, you know, uh, of some coverage that we had to uh, kind of to get to evolve to that to that stage, yeah. and of course, um, after we won the the talent show, it kind of gave guys a little incentive, you know, like wow, you know, they really liked us. In fact. Uh, after they started applauding, you know, uh, introduced the guys, they came out from behind the curtains, <laughs> and uh, of course, you know, not to get peanuts thrown on you, and just, just, you know, to actually applaud. It was a, uh, it was a breath of fresh air. You
0: know? What were you guys playing?
1: Uh, we played um, uh, "Cold Sweat" by James oh, Randall. Nice. <laughs> and uh, and of course. Uh, we played uh, a little bit of Tobacco Road uh, and uh, we wanted to do a, just a slight medley, you know. So it was a Cold Sweat, Tobacco Road, and then um, we did a little bit of Archibald and the Drell's Tighten Up.
0: <laughs> and who was mostly doing the vocals at that point?
1: At that point uh we had uh, a young lady who did the initial vocals uh, she was my roommate's girlfriend and um she sang tobacco road and and of course um alfred hines who was on the bass, he he did the little james brown you know uh squealing and stuff and then afterwards after the talent show about that. I really was trying to find some instruments, you know, permanently because I had borrowed the uh, guitar from a young man who was in another band called the Jays and the Jays was um, uh, it broken up, basically, not because of any infighting or anything, but uh, some of the members just graduated and, um, you know, We thought it would be a good idea if I could find these guys and maybe merge the two bands together because we didn't have any real equipment and they had all of the great stuff. So we managed to hook up with the Jays, and in the Jays, it was Mylon Williams, uh, Jimmy Johnson, and Michael Gilbert. So now, Mike Gilbert was on the bass, Jim Johnson was on the sax, and Milo Williams was on the keys. And then he they merged with uh, my band was called the Mystics, mm-hmm. uh, which consisted of uh, myself, Lionel Richie, and William King, and uh, Andre Callahan. So <clears throat> now the task became, can we convince Lionel's grandparents? Because the summer has come around now, and we were trying to stick together doing, you know, for the summer. And we so we had to convince Lionel's grandparents and his parents to let him play in the band because he was going to be going back to Joliet, Illinois, to work in the bomb factory with his dad, which was going to be a summer job. And so. That was kind of challenging because, you know, grandmother Falser, you know, she wasn't taking any wood nickels, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, but the thing was, we're not gonna be doing any drugs. We're not gonna be playing in, you know, in any rowdy clubs. So we're gonna try to just basically stay clean and do, you know, colleges and you know, try to do corporate dates and that kind of stuff. And so anyway, we convinced her and she says, okay, you know, um, uh, you'll let him let him play with us. So we're headed to New York now. We saved up enough money. Um, the Jays had this one van that you know they had purchased and you know it was an older van. But we had enough money for like maybe to get to New York, we thought. However, when we got to the New Jersey turnpike, we ran out of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had to borrow money to get into Jersey and to New York. Um the, the gentleman at the toll booth, he's you know, he looked in the in the van, he says, you know what, I believe you guys. He says, because if you had somebody, you would have released rented a a trailer, you know, because I see seven guys in here, you know, with all the equipment and your luggage and everything, you know. <laughs> it's like so he led us through. And when we got to the city, uh I had relatives there. Lionel had relatives there and Milan had relatives there, but we didn't want to stay with our relatives. We wanted to, you know, we're gonna make it, we're gonna take New York by storm, man, we're not, you know, so we- uh,
0: Thomas, you guys are all what, about 20?
1: No, we were like uh, 19. 19. And so um, we get in the city and we think, hmm, the collegiate thing to do is to maybe go to the YMCA and talk to the manager there and see if we, you know, do some work for uh, room or something. You know, exchange. Uh, uh So as we went in to talk to the guy, we asked a couple of guys to watch our equipment while we went inside. And they were fascinated at the tall buildings and everything. They looking up at the buildings and all this stuff. And when we came outside, it someone stole you all our equipment.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like. It's like Stevie Wonder living for the city.
1: Yeah, man. <laughs> in fact, uh, this particular scene was used in the movie Thank God It's Friday. Oh. And of course, they used this story and the whole script. And in fact, we got a role in the movie as well with Don Summer, you know, and uh, Too Hot to Try It was a song that I wrote for that movie and for the soundtrack and all, but I was just getting a little head of the story, but that was our initial introduction to New York. And as we were, now we are in New York, no equipment, no money. So we hear about this, uh, we had heard about a nightclub called um, Small's Paradise. Wilt Chamberlain uh, owned it and um, That's where a lot of the celebrities would come and hang out, you know, it opened from 10 to four o'clock in the morning, you know. And um, so we go there in hopes of um, just trying to see what we can make something happen, uh, maybe get to uh, audition there or something, you know. So we're standing outside and here come the guy who stole our equipment now, trying to sell it. (laughs) <laughs> He's like, hey, anybody want to buy it? I mean, we had our uh, uniforms and everything with the cleaning tags on it and everything. He's like, man, that's all stuff. So we were going to maybe try and take our stuff back. And so the gentleman that was working there at Smalls out front, he says, hey, man, you guys are going to get hurt. Don't do that. Give the guy $50, and he'll give you your stuff back. We said, but we don't have 50 bucks. <laughs> he winds up loaning us the 50 bucks, getting us to audition in Smalls. We um, towed the house down and we got to play there for the rest of the summer. This gentleman became our manager and that was the beginning of, of um, a a. a a, a, a really really ride that would be a, an incredible journey.
0: What what was his name? Benjamin Ashburn. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way.
1: You know. Yeah, and of course, Benny Ashburn was a was a good friend of Susanna Pass. He grew up with Susanna Pass, and uh, Susanna Pass had just gotten. She was. The agent that was booking all the gigs at the Cheater and some of the clubs in New York there, another club in the village called the Dome. And Barry Gordy had heard about her. So he was just moving out to Los Angeles. So he invited Suzanne out to Los Angeles to head a new division that he was starting and It was called the Creative Department. and. Um, at that time, it wasn't Artist Relations. They changed it to Artist Relations, in our, but her first assignment was to Jackson 5. And they had just been on Ed Sullivan and they were just uh, ready to tour uh, a major national tour of the States. And they were looking for an opening act. And so she called her good buddy, Benny Ashburn, her friend, and asked him if he wanted to, uh, Submit uh, his group to an audition for that slot, and um, we did. We uh, it was at Lost Price Turntable turn is where the audition took place on Fifty Second and Broadway, and uh, we um, obviously we won, we won the audition, and and it was um, the fifty two uh, cities around the, the United States um, and it gave us incredible exposure and after we toured for two years with them uh, Barrett Gordon says hey are these guys not signed and we were um, um, awarded a contract with Motown and you know from just the momentum and the write ups and stuff that we had gotten from our live performances. Now, we, we didn't have any hit songs, obviously. We were playing at that time, our repertoire now was we would do three Dog Night songs, uh, you know, Liar, we would do a James Taylor song, You Got a Friend, with, you know, we would do a uh, Glenn Campbell, Wichita Lyman. That was our three times a lady, by the way. <laughs> it was a big hit for us. We would do uh, Slash, Stone, you know, change uh, Brown, but we would what I call Commodorize the songs, which meant putting our own twist to it. Mm. And so here now you have white audiences who could identify with, you know, uh, your James Taylor's and your Glenn Cameras and your Three All Nights. And then, of course, we, we were introducing uh, African-American audiences to those same artists. And, of course, they knew the James Brown songs and the Slash Stone songs. So now, all of a sudden, now we are appealing to a crossover market even before we started uh, recording and before we started writing. And now that. Uh, that We have gotten this contract with Motown. Um, We respected the system that they had. We respected the machine that Barry had assembled. However, we didn't want to use the uh, system, and that—that was, he had, you know, songwriters and producers and musicians that would go in and they would, you know, write the songs, produce the tracks, and then he would have the artists come in and just sing on top of the tracks.
0: They had like an assembly line. Yeah, it was an assembly line,
1: exactly. And uh, and so everybody was like shocked. Um, in fact, um, Ray Parker Jr. and some of these musicians, they, they had cut some of these tracks and we was like, they, you know, that's all that's good, but it's not us. And so we, for two years, refused to activate our contract, which was unheard of. Most, most artists, you know, you get a contract, you can't wait to, oh, go in the studio and let's record, you know. But our concept was, we knew we were spending our money um, because you know it had to be um, uh, recouped, and we weren't ready to activate uh, the contract for that reason uh, and spend money on tracks that we just weren't feeling.
0: And did did everyone in the band see eye to eye with that?
1: Oh yes, yeah. And it was it was very powerful because uh, we literally uh would come out and they would uh, introduce us to various producers and you know tracks and we would listen to them and go back to tuskegee (laughs) it was like man we can't believe these guys are doing this (laughs) so finally barry gordon said you know what these guys are pretty serious about doing it their way leave them alone the worst case scenario, it would just be a write-off, a tax write-off, but leave them alone. So we went in and so it was now, we knew technically though that we still needed to um, come up to par as far as, you know, getting the, the right engineer and the right arranger and the right, you know, so we 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 did our homework. We did some due diligence, and we saw this gentleman James Carmichael, who who appeared on a lot of these credits as a ranger. and he had arranged for oh man everybody a motel. and he was from Alabama, and Gatson, Alabama, and and we met him, and you know so chemistry wise, we just kind of. You know, just it was yeah uh-huh. Yeah, it was like, man, this guy. You know, he understands what we're we're trying to accomplish, but he doesn't necessarily understand our, uh, our 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 sound and what we're trying to develop. But at least he understands the direction that we're trying to go. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to do something innovative we want to be, we're trying to do, you know, a trajectory where we can bring uh, unique melodies and unique chord progressions together with different kinds of rhythms. And and so that it could be appealing to not only um, an R&B audience, uh, but a crossover, you know, pop, you know, and that, and so, there we went into the woodshed, and it was, it was fun. It was, he taught us how to arrange and how to um, commercialize our ideas in a way that was just, I mean, it was, um, it, it, it changed our whole um, perception of, of how we were gonna uh, approach our music, you know? Uh, systematically and uh, but he would be the first to tell you he said now I don't understand quite understand what y'all are doing he says but uh, I'll just be a fly on the wall and say okay gentlemen now this right here could be best you know uh, presented if if you did it like this you know (laughs) How
0: how much older was he than you guys
1: james Carmichael, um he was maybe five years older, you know, but he had the wisdom and um to still um, uh, like he had the wisdom of of a maybe you know seventy year old man, but he was he was young at heart, which made it great, you know.
0: So you guys went in, and um, you eventually turned out Machine Gun, right? That's right. Yeah. In fact, we had great success right out of the gate, pretty much. At least it seems that way. Yeah,
1: we were the Machine Gun album was the first uh, gold album in the history of Motown Records. <laughs> Motown had never sold a gold album until that time. They had gold forty fives,
0: plenty of them. Can win some bar bets with that.
1: Oh yes. In fact, that was the that was the thing that really gave us leverage, you know, and on renegotiating our contract, because we had a one contract deal, a one album deal with an option for them to pick that option up. And uh, after that first album went gold, we said, "Hey, we're out of (laughs) here." And Mr. Gordy went like, wait a minute, not so fast. What do you mean? <laughs> uh, we said, well, you know, CVS, we got, you know, some other labels that are interested. And obviously, um he his thing was, okay, what is it gonna take to keep you guys here? Ah, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> we have got to participate in our publishing. Mm-hmm. So we were the first act in the history of Motown to get our publishing rights. And Stephen Wonder had a, and had a really shrewd lawyer who had uh, in his contract, what was called a favorite nation clause, um, which allowed him to get whatever was the highest deal and you know, on the label, he was bumped up to it as a result of us getting ours. So as a result of us getting on publishing, Stevie got his, Marvin Gaye, Norma Whitfield, uh, you know. Well, so They must
0: have liked you guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. We, we. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow.
0: So that was 1974, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, the title track was a hit. It also had the bump. Um, Young Girls Are My Weakness, The Zoo. Yeah. Um, man. That's an impressive debut.
1: Thank you, yeah, that was, uh, in fact, on that one album, we did become the Black Beatles in the Philippines. We broke the Beatles' attendance record at the Araneta Coliseum uh, in 1975. And it was, um, Ferdinand Marcos was the president at that time. And uh, he sent the military to escort us from the airport because the crowd was enormous. And uh, as we were coming from the airport to our hotel, we heard this gentleman in the balcony, you know, yelling, hey, who are you guys? I'm the greatest. Who are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> that was Muhammad Ali. <laughs>
0: Gotta be, huh?
1: Because <laughs> we, weren't, we, weren't, we weren't big in the States at that time, with, you know, not to not to uh, to uh, draw 274,000 people, mm. you know. But um, that album took off. I mean, it was the biggest selling album in the history of Nigeria, a uh,
0: lot of other, a lot of countries
1: around the world.
0: And the title track, which is instrumental, has gone on to be in so many films and oh, I mean, Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's yeah. a song that keeps on giving. <laughs>
1: It does, man. It does, and the strategy, uh, and uh, you know, thanks to Carmichael, James Carmichael too. The strategy was now. Remember, now, okay, Michael Gilbert. uh, I'm going back a little bit, you know, um, before the um, Jackson Five tour. Michael Gilbert on the bass was our lead singer. So when he got drafted to the Vietnam War, um, I overheard Lionel singing in the shower one time, and I went, man, you could sing. <laughs> but of course, he wasn't really confident about it, And but then as he started to sing and get the reaction from the audience, his confidence, be, you know, um, became um more embedded in in, in in everything, and of course, so and Walter Lawrence, who replaced um, Andre Callahan, because Andre Callahan volunteered for the Navy. Mm. So at that time, Walter was a drummer that sang lead and played the drums, and so that attribute was one of the things that attracted uh, Lionel to him, and of course we recruited him to replace Andre Callahan. However, when we got to the first recording, um, James Carmichael was, was like, okay, it hadn't really been decided strategically whether we had a real lead singer or not. And so, His thing was, okay, you know what, guys? If we come out with an instrumental, it'll give us a chance to kind of test the waters, you know, between Walter Orange and Lionel and to see how we can, you know, get a feel for what the audience may be uh, attracted to as far as our lead. And um, we can take it from there. So that strategy was, it it panned out because Machine Gun, and then his thing was, if it doesn't hit, then you don't blow your opportunity to come back, you know, with a first impression with a vocal song, you know, and so um, we thought that was a good strategy.
0: Yeah, It's, uh, it's it's, it's hard to be a lead vocalist being behind the drums, I mean, when you're when you're really trying to get a crowd going and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um, the next record caught in the act in '75 uh, which again is where I got on board um, I heard Machine Gun but I wasn't it was sort of in the periphery for me because mm. I was young um, it, but you know as soon as I heard that hypnotic riff of uh, Slippery When Wet um, and that the, the beat, you know, you have that like that, bzz, bzz, that kind of yeah, beat. Yeah. that I, I was yeah. saying it was it reminded me of like a heart being grabbed or something, <laughs> you know, uh, Yeah, stopped in your tracks. Um, so. You know, let's talk about that as a lead into this record, because, I mean, the whole album, you guys definitely stepped it up considerably from the debut. I mean, caught in the act. It's just great through and through. Well,
1: thank you. Yeah. Um, Well, we wanted to, um, when I obviously, when I thought about Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone, um, I said to myself, what if Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone was in the same band, you know? um, Jimmy's guitar tones was something that everybody just, you know, slobbered at the mouth at, you know? And I thought if I could get a tone that's not just straight up r but that has a slight distorted tone to it, but had the bite of a sly stone with that funk, that sly managed to, to get, you know, with higher and all of the, thank you for letting me be myself, all these, you know, that, I mean, that fire, you know. Um. So, as I played and tossed that around in my mind, uh, uh, I I finally got the tone that I was looking for, and then I thought about um, now it has to be that burning riff that just just jumps out there and grabs you by by the by your by your collar, you know. That says, "Oh man, this is fire!" You know, this is this is uh, energy, you know? And of course, I was, um, I was riding down, um, I think I was up on Mahone Drive and you know, you see those signs, Slippery When Wet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, Slippery When Wet, that that would be a great song title, you know? <laughs> and uh, of course, um, just just trying to, um now bring lyrically the concept of how can you tie it in with a, a story that, you know, can invite um, people in, you know, And so we um, and of course, um, this is your life. Um, was just a, 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 a just a, just an incredible, a uh, melodic song, but that still grooved and had, you know, um, a message that um, spoke to the hearts and the souls of people. And um, so it was a way now of us all of a sudden saying, hey, you know, not only can we be funky, we've shown you that with Machine Gun and, you know, the bump, and I feel sanctified. On the first record. And now, lyrically, you know, we can, you know, be kind of, you know, a little slick a little bit with slippery and wet, they, they make you think a little bit.
0: Yeah, right. But the double entendres.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, This Is Your Life, we can really slam it and, and,
0: brought to, and bring it to church, too. That's yeah.
1: it. Bring it to church, you know.
0: Um, and and Lionel just killed the vocals too. Oh,
1: um, he killed it! He I mean, absolutely killed it.
0: <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> did. Did did he tend to get it in in a you know like in the first take or two, or did it take a lot of work?
1: Well, that was what was so amazing about it. Um, portions of it was just a, a take or two, and then. Once he kind of got the character down and saw where it was going, it you know um, there you know toward the end of the song, you know was a more um, of James Carmichael directing us into okay now we got to you 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 set him up now you got to really give him some serious some seri- a serious message here. So um, that took a little a little more you know time and a little more takes, but uh, just that oh man, that character that was uh, that was that you know was introduced in the, in the beginning of it, he did that just like one or two takes that was like, you know.
0: And whose idea was it to do that sort of unique kind of pulsing, beat rhythm part of it. Well
1: of it. see that's the part when you look at um uh those days of of going back before we started recording and how we would commodorize <laughs> those songs from the top forty um that's we we that's when we dove into that part of our creativity and saying you know what uh all right yeah this could be just a regular ballot like everybody else's ballots but we don't want to do that you know how can we make this different how can we make this um uh still have the same kind of melodic feel and attraction but energy in the music and so um i've been told that um my contributions have been very significant in, in terms of that signature sound
0: yeah
1: so um in fact in the book i talk about that how um how you know we uh, how i created the signature sound uh um And in the next album, you know, you would notice, like in Sweet Love, for instance, uh, the Moving On album. um, Here again, you have what could (laughs) easily have been just a ballad, you know, Show Me a River That's So Deep. But when you put that, those uh, syncopated, Rhythms with that. Now you got something different. You got you got a a a larger
0: yes, and you got those horn punctuations. Yes, yeah, Uh, and um, even the horns had a unique flavor, kind of like the way War did. You know, not quite the same kind of horn sound as a lot of the other bands. That's exactly right. Um, Were you? I want to talk about moving on a little more, but um, were you guys, you know, you talked about having mass appeal. Were you a little disappointed that Slippery When Wet did become a bigger pop hit at that time?
1: Very much so. And we sort of blame the record label, you know, for um, not, um, because everything has to be marketed, obviously, and promoted, you know. And um, the record label was still sort of, I guess they they were still kind of like, mm, okay, we know these guys have you know they they've come out and they the first gold album, um, but they weren't so sure as to how to market us you know and pop wise, excuse me and um, and, and 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 so as a result of that um, you know we I, 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 when I look back at it, I think we we uh, probably lost some momentum as a result of that because, yeah, I went to number one on RB, but I mean, come on, you know, there's a whole nother you know, there's um,
0: yeah, I felt I felt disappointed for you guys. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? and, and to me, I don't know how you feel about it, but I thought it uh, that and maybe I feel sanctified. Uh, really influenced like play that funky music by wild cherry. Oh no question. And, and then that became this gigantic hit.
1: Yes. That's you know? exactly right. In fact when we met those guys, that was the first thing they told us. Man, you know, uh, the slipper when wet was a definite influence of play that funky music. And of course, uh you know, <clears throat> what can you say? <laughs> Yeah. I'm glad that it at least influenced others to, um, to you know, to want to go in that vein, you know.